Welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. It is our intention to continue offering these audio recordings free of charge. However, if you would like to donate to support our cause and keeping our facility open in Nashville, you can do so via the Venmo app by sending a donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can find us online at our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, and click the Donate tab. It's kind of weird to give a Dharma talk every week. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because the Buddhist teachings are so experiential. I think in the Western world, we're so used to, you know, ideas and concepts and philosophies, like talking about experience. And Buddhism is so much more about being in experience. And, you know, part of my practice has been for some time to take like a day out of the week when I have that privileged opportunity to just slow down a little bit and try to be with experience. I've been reflecting on the early days of my introduction to Buddhism and my teacher, Dave Smith, who actually founded this Sangha, this community, eight years ago when we were on, uh, under another name against the Stream Nashville. And so he's been kind of on my mind today as I've slowed down and you know, thinking about what I'm going to talk about and how the Dharma has been alive in my life recently. You know, the thing that I love about my introduction to Buddhism and the Dharma is my teacher Dave is such a simple man. And I joke with him and say that he teaches blue-collar Dharma. (laughs) He's like a, he owned a concrete business in Massachusetts. But he's been practicing the Dharma since he was 18 and I feel fortunate myself to, you know, have lived a good amount of my life in active addiction and kind of connecting with the underbelly of society. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think that there's something about just being able to be simple and to be able to, you know, as the Buddha says, to teach the Dharma in a way that's in a language that people can understand. And my teacher's really great at this, and um, and it kind of inspired me to think about some of the fundamentals, just like, what are the basics of this practice? And so tonight I want to talk about the Buddha's really prescription for happiness, the Eightfold Path, And it's a lot to cover, so I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do it. My main plan right now is just to kind of pause every five minutes or so and see what the hell is going on. (laughs) And so the first thing I like to reflect on when I come into the room here and I'm thinking about, okay, what are we going to talk about today is like, why are we here? 
you know, what's the purpose of spiritual practice? What's the purpose of, you know, meditation? What are we doing here? What's our ultimate concern? I think that our ultimate concern is how do we cultivate happiness in our lives, in the lives of others? I think, like I said, the Buddhist teaching is really a prescription for happiness. Not only our own, but happiness and well-being, the well-being of others. Sometimes they say that the fruition of spiritual practice is enlightenment or awakening. Right? But I think that there's something actually quite problematic about these terms sometimes because it seems to suggest that there's like this kind of like private, special, subjective kind of experience that as you meditate, as you forge ahead on your spiritual path, that eventually you attain this state of enlightenment or awakening. Which I'm fairly convinced, not only through my own practice, but through studying the Buddha's teachings, that he was not describing that type of awakening. I think instead he was talking about, as he says in the Sutta, the ocean, uh, training, a practice and a path that he says has a gradual cultivation to it. He says, just as the ocean has no sudden precipice, right, that we don't just step into deep water, at least when we're on the beach, there's this gradual shelf, and that the path is really about uh, well, it's about awareness, and it's about learning what's skillful. It's about creatively engaging with our lives over time. And by being interested in happiness and what causes and supports happiness, we start to practice the behaviors that support it. So I like to say that Buddhism is actually a behavior. It's not a philosophy. It's not a religion. It's not a It's not about the nature of reality in the world. It's about how do we see clearly and respond wisely within this human condition. And through that seeing clearly and responding wisely, find more ease and more well-being within ourselves and within the world. So I say that we're not trying to find happiness. Sometimes we talk about you know, like finding, I think sometimes we can stumble into, we can kind of stumble into it a little bit. Like we can have moments of clarity, but we're trying to cultivate it, right? And the Buddha uses these metaphors, these agricultural metaphors quite a bit. It's like this middle path, this path is really, it's a process of cultivation, One of the ways he describes this is it's like we do stumble upon an ancient ruin. I've been using this metaphor quite a bit lately. Like we're wandering through the jungle, he says, and we stumble upon this ancient ruin, this ancient city that's been covered in vines and dirt from years and years of uh, just change over time. And that this ancient city, our task is to uncover it. 
so it can be, as he says, had, habitable again, so we can live in it again, and so it can thrive and flourish. And so awakening is not really about changing ourselves or adding something to ourselves. It's about uncovering what's already here. Because I think we're, it's safe to say that each one of us, deep down, we want happiness and well-being. I think ultimately that's what we want. And so how do we cultivate that? How do we develop that? How do we train the mind? How do we you know, become interested and support the conditions that help us to do that? An interesting thing about happiness, I want to talk a little bit about this, because it's not a word that I'm, you know, have had much of a healthy relationship with most of my life. <laughs> As a person, like I said, that was in active addiction for quite a while, happiness was in feeling good, you know, feeling kind of this intense, exciting sense of like being alive, being on the edge. But in the Buddhist way of kind of looking at happiness, it's a very particular type of happiness that we're cultivating and developing, practicing, which is a deeper abiding sense of happiness. It's not conditional. It's not dependent upon things being the way that I want them to be. It's a type of happiness that is about learning how to relate to things the way they are. So this is really subtle, but very important. From a Buddhist perspective, happiness is not about people, places, things, experiences. It's not about accumulating or finding some linear path to a place where we arrive. It's about how we relate to what is in front of us. The Dalai Lama talks about happiness quite a bit, and he said, I believe that the very purpose of our life is to seek happiness. Whether one believes in religion or not, whether one believes in this religion or that religion, we are all seeking something better in life. So I think the very motion of our life is towards happiness. So the Buddha says there are two types of happiness. One is worldly and one is unworldly. Worldly happiness is the happiness that comes from people, places, things, experiences. It's the happiness that comes from pleasant feelings, enjoyable emotions. And he says that there's a lot of gratification and contentment we can find in that happiness. He said that the world does provide some sense of you know, worldly pleasure. And he says, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But the world can't provide lasting happiness because we, as we move through our worlds, find that these experiences, these people, these places, these things, they all change. We can't quite arrange the furniture exactly right, you know, because we come in the next day and it's somewhere else. Maybe that's not the best metaphor. <laughs> I don't know who's moving my furniture around, but someone is. You know, and so the world provides some degree of happiness, but 
this deeper kind of abiding sense of happiness is something that's portable. It's a happiness that comes from being with things the way that they are, not needing things to be a certain way. There's some neuroscience researchers that their whole job is to study happiness. And some of them say that as our, after our basic needs are met, happiness has very little to do with what we acquire from the world. They say, and there's a lot that's in this quote, they say happiness is not about what you get from the world, but how you are with the world. So this is the practice of the Dharma. How do we creatively engage with conditions the way that they are? How do we see clearly into you know, our experiences and respond wisely to our experiences? This is the development of wisdom and compassion. Right? But I like those more as like action words, seeing clearly, responding wisely. We need some structure. We need some, I should say, a map can help us to navigate the world with more clarity and more compassion. And so the Buddha, after his you know, supposed awakening, he reflected on his experience and he recognized that there was this kind of these trainings, these eight trainings and practices that, when balanced, lead to our welfare and our happiness. And this is what we refer to as the Eightfold Path. Before the Buddha taught mindfulness, before the Buddha taught ethics and wisdom, the Buddha taught two things that are really important. When people would come to him and say, hey, I seek happiness, he would say, okay, what you need to do is you need to connect with other people. You need to, as he says, associate with the wise. I want to read a quote. That's only part of the quote, but... He says, live among the wise who are understanding, patient, responsible, and noble. Keep their company like the moon moving among the stars. He said, if we want happiness, we've got to start to connect with one another. Right? We have to start to you know, develop some accountability for that. Because the mind, and we know this in neuroscience too, is a rationalizing mind. Really the job of our prefrontal cortex, the kind of most recent part of the human brain, is to rationalize the drives of the lower brains. And what the lower brains are trying to do is to find comfort and get rid of discomfort. So a lot of times our kind of biological drive is to rationalize ways to feel good. It's not our fault, that's just what happens. But sometimes the things we do to feel good don't lead to our welfare and happiness. <laughs> they lead to feeling good, but they don't ultimately lead to our welfare and happiness. And so one of the best ways to remain accountable is by staying connected to people. 
And this is what's called the Sangha, the community. And it's one of the three refuges in Buddhism. You know, the, they, the Buddha said that the Sangha is the whole of the Dharma. We don't wake up alone, we wake up together. And so he said that's very important. The other thing that's really important is to practice generosity and service. You know, when people would come to him and say, hey, how can I, you know, participate in my happiness and well-being? He'd say, help other people. Get outside of yourself. Right? Because when we connect with people in this way, there's something that's really immediate about the well-being that we experience. You know, it's like, it's almost impossible. I, I don't know if it is impossible. I won't go that far. But it's almost impossible when your heart is really filled with generosity and service and you have that intention in mind and you're there to support someone. It's really hard to be caught up in delusion and, you know, self-obsession and, you know, all of the shit that just occupies our minds on a daily basis. And so that's really important to say because as I you know, go in and talk through the Eightfold Path, I think it's important to recognize what's the foundation that we build on. And it's one of community and it's one of service. And so I'm going to like kind of skip around a little bit because the Eightfold Path, I'll just go over real quick, are eight factors. And traditionally, the Buddha refers to this path as the middle path. And I like to think about the middle path as being kind of two things. One, it's in the middle of extremes. So it's about moderation. It's about balance. It's about seeing clearly and responding wisely. And it's also a path that is in the middle. So we're trying to practice balancing these factors. You'll see on the board that every one of the factors has the word wise before it. So if there's wise view, the first factor, there must then be unwise view. If there's wise intention, there must be unwise intentions. And so the Dharma is kind of like a map, the Buddha's teaching, in that the insight and wisdom we develop isn't from staring at the map. It's from walking the territory. But the map is just kind of a guide for helping us to balance and live in a wise way in the middle of the terrain, wherever we find ourselves. One of my teachers, Ajahn Suchito, I like to say this quote, because when he said it, it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. He said, the Dharma, the Buddhist teaching, the Dharma, is not systems and structures. It's the wisdom that comes from using systems and structures skillfully. So, what is the foundation of the map? I'm going to go over the eight factors, and then I'll talk about the foundation, and we'll move from there. There are eight parts of the Eightfold Path. The first is wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. 
confusingly, this path is not linear, it's circular. If you look at symbolic representations of the Eightfold Path, it's a Dharma wheel. So the weird thing is that we start with view and intention, which is the wisdom factors, and we end with view and intention. So in order to walk on a path, you have to have some sense of, I want to do this. I want to, as one of uh, my teachers, George Haas says, one of my early teachers, you have to make a decision that you want to be a good person to engage in a spiritual practice, period. And I like that because it's so simple. He's like, you just have to make a decision. I want to be a good person, (laughs) right? And so you have to have some view and intention, right, to start. But through walking the path, your view and your intentions become more clarified. Our wisdom becomes more refined. So it's kind of the starting and the end. It's both. But this is where it gets really confusing. I don't really know how to make sense out of this. But it's really the third, fourth, and fifth factors. That's why I have a number one next to it. That's the foundation of the path. So after wise association and service, the two things that the Buddha taught before engaging really or or starting forging ahead on our spiritual journey, he said you want to have really good foundation in your values and your behaviors. The word that we use for this is sila. And sila is sometimes defined as like ethics, it's sometimes defined as morality, but these can be really problematic because in the Western world we're conditioned and I'm, I hope to not talk poorly of these, this conditioning, but we're conditioned by commandment ethics, which is legalist ethics, which is this idea that there's a divine judge. Even in our criminal system, which is legalist ethics, there's a, divine, there's a judge that determines, you know, and doles out the kind of uh, the consequences for behaviors. Buddhism is completely different. In the ancient Indian context, there's no divine judge. So we have to be more vigilant in the sense of, am I living in line with my values? What do I value? And do my actions line up with those? And to really check in in the moment and ask ourselves that question. How am I with my speech, my communication? How am I with my actions, my behaviors? How am I at work? How's my relationship to money and my job? Right. So this is a training practice. It's not about being judged, but that the ultimate judge is the causal relationship of what we do creates habituation. Whatever you practice, you get better at. And from a Buddhist perspective, happiness is a collection of good habits. If you want to feel good, you got to do things you feel good about. If you value things and you don't live in line with those values, you suffer. Right? When I was in active addiction and I was being deceitful, manipulative, even though I felt good because I was getting high, I didn't feel good about myself, ultimately. Because I don't value dishonesty, manipulation, deceit, isolation, all of the things that came with those behaviors. 
So we have to be really, you know, from the Buddhist framework, we have to be really on top of our shit, you know, because it's not about eternal judgment. It's about actually when we practice living with deceit, manipulation, those habituated patterns get stronger. Right? You ever find yourself lying about something and just automatically being like, why the fuck did I just lie about that? <laughs> it's like, I could have just told the truth, but I didn't, right? It's like, it's just a habit. You know, you ever stop in that moment and be like, oh, where did I learn to just, what was I scared of, right? That's kind of an old habit. And so we start with kind of looking at our values and seeing if our behaviors line up. This is very important in terms of how we practice mindfulness in the West, too. Mindfulness has kind of been cherry-picked out of the Eightfold Path and placed into our Western world as a uh, kind of self-improvement practice. But really, the Buddha's whole path is not about self-improvement. It's about selflessness. It's not about improving the self. It's about the reality that nothing is actually wrong with you in the first place. There's nothing to improve. We need to just connect or reconnect to what we value and live by those things on a daily basis. You know, and so there is an ethical kind of foundation to why we want to do this stuff. And the basis of the sila is non-harming. If that's not our goal, ultimately, then why do we even practice mindfulness? To just develop more focus, more relaxation, right? But then if I'm going into work and I'm, you know, lying to the people I'm selling to and I'm, you know, coming home and I'm you know, an asshole. Our behavior conditions our mind, right? Jack Kornfield says it's hard to meditate after a long day of killing and lying and stealing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so we have to really start by cleaning up our behavior. That's that's the starting point. And I want to talk a little bit about that. The first of the kind of foundation in sila is wise communication. I don't know about y'all, but a lot of the harm that I have caused and that I have received in my life, a lot of the suffering that I've experienced, a lot of the obstacles to my happiness have been around ways that I've spoken to people and things that have been said to me. Right, And so really being mindful of, is the key word, (laughs) aware of our speech is a great way to start to find connection in Sangha, right? To support the foundation of our spiritual practice. Is what I'm saying true? Is what I'm saying useful? Is what I'm saying timely? Is what I'm saying kind? These are four kind of 
trainings and practices, it's mindful reflections for speech. Also practicing like attuning to people and listening and you know, trying to practice, as the Buddha says, to refrain from divisive speech. Have you ever noticed that when you talk shit about people, those people don't trust you as much? Or the people that talk shit about your other friends, you don't want to tell them stuff? Right? Because when we gossip and we engage in divisive speech, it's not about it being immoral. It's about the causal relationship, the effect of that. When we're not careful with our speech, we you know, can cause quite a bit of our harm in our lives and the lives of others. So wise communication is one of the areas that we work with. But really the foundation, or I'll jump on to the other one, wise livelihood. So I'll kind of skip. We spend more time working than doing anything else in our lives. We spend quite a bit of our time at work. And so the Buddha is saying, you know, it's a great venue to practice non-harming and to practice seeing if what we do with our time lines up with what we value. And this is hard because it's not always that easy, right? Sometimes it's like, well, I, you know, I kind of found this job, and it's the job I have, and it's not where I want to be forever, but it's what I have to do right now. And so, again, it's not about right and wrong. It's about just checking in. Is what I do for work something that I value? And also looking at our relationship to money. There's a lot of suffering around two things in particular. I learned this in recovery. They say romances and finances, (laughs) right? Money is a big cause of stress and suffering. It's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of joy and a lot of happiness that can come from having money and having access to money. And there's a lot of, you know, greed and scarcity and delusion that can come from money. There's a lot of power that comes with money. And so looking at our relationship to money and work are big parts of our kind of ethical foundation. Of course, these go into more detail as if we could, I could spend two talks just on work and then one on money, right? There's a lot that we could tease out with this. But for now, we're just looking at, okay, this is important, how we communicate, what we do for work, our relationship to money. And this is all held in the framework of what's called wise action. In Buddhism, it's common for lay practitioners, people like you and I, non-monks, to practice training in these precepts, which are kind of parameters or ways of keeping ourselves accountable to our values. And there are five precepts that lay people practice and work with. The first is, I'll I'll, I'll say my version of them, is to undertake the training to refrain from intentionally causing harm to living beings. So as a training to refrain from intentionally causing harm. The second is to refrain from taking that which is not freely offered to us. 
So on one hand, this could be stealing, but it's much more subtle than that. It's about how do we take things, right? Sometimes it's even uh, like prying into people's information or trying to get something that's not being offered. The third is to refrain from, or, or I should say, I like to say to be wise and careful with our sexual energy, refraining from causing harm with our sexuality. And so this is the other aspect that's really major. Money and livelihood is a big part. Sexuality is a big part of areas that I think a lot of us have experienced harm through. and Some of us has, have caused harm through. It's a very powerful energy. Right? The Buddha said that if there was any power as strong as sexual desire that coexisted, if there was another power as strong as sexual desire, that no one could ever fully awaken. He said it would just be too hard. <laughs> right? And so for his monks, he said, don't, don't worry about money. He said, renounce your worldly possessions. Go into a community. Only eat two meals a day. You know, the community feeds monastics in the Theravadan tradition. They don't deal money. They don't have money. And he said, and renounce engaging in sexual activity celibacy. And you'll notice I didn't say renounce sexuality because monks are sexual beings. We all are, right? So there's this kind of delicate balance about one of the interesting things in our culture and society is sex is everywhere, but it's talked about nowhere. It's the craziest thing. <laughs> it's like, I mean, you know, Every ad that I see, every, I mean, it's everywhere. Every song that you could listen to is sexualized, right? But it's not talked about. And so to try to practice really bringing awareness to our sexual energy, you know, what is, what is a healthy sense and expression of sexuality look like for us? And really, you know, bringing that in as a practice, and then to refrain from uh, dishonest, manipulative, harsh, and divisive speech. So you see speech come up in this path factor of action. And then to refrain from intoxicating drinks and drugs that lead to heedlessness. So again, the Buddha is not having a moral opinion about alcohol and drug use. But he's saying it's really hard to be heedful when we're intoxicated. It just is. And so you got to really be careful with our engagement with intoxicants. And I like the way that Thich Nhat Hanh talks about this. Is he doesn't talk about it in terms of stopping drugs and alcohol. He's, he calls it wise consumption. Practicing being careful with what we consume. This means media. This means like whatever we consume. And so you can see these three factors, although they're not easily parsed out, they're kind of together as this bundle of sila, this kind of ethical foundation, speech, action, livelihood. It's, it serves as the basis for what's the next part, which is the training of the mind. This is what's unique to the Buddha's teaching. 
I think every humanist tradition emphasizes sila to some degree in different ways. Right? But the Buddha said that how you think is also a behavior. <coughs> and whatever you think about, right? he says, I'm trying to think of the exact quote from the Dhammapada. It's the first line in the Dhammapada. He says that, well, I'll say the kind of abbreviated version. Whatever one thinks and frequently ponders upon becomes the inclination of their mind. Just think about that. Whatever we think and frequently ponder upon becomes the inclination of the mind. Mindfulness is incredibly powerful practice. Because what it's doing is it's helping us to develop introspective awareness, an ability to look in to the mind to the emotional experience, into the body, and to observe directly that experience. The purpose of mindfulness is really there are kind of a couple ways that we can think about it. One is to help to develop wise concentration. It's more kind of ability to be present, focused, and engaged with what's happening in the here and now. So just like during the meditation tonight when we have an anchor and we make that choice to return and just hear the sound and try to connect with the sounds or connect with the body or the breath, we're improving our ability to be present. But mindfulness also helps us to develop awareness. Mindfulness is not just about being present. Because what's the point in just being present? You know, it's helpful to be present because we don't get so lost in thoughts. But mindfulness is also about being aware and observing the mind. So when the mind wanders, where does it go? Right? When you're able to watch the mind and see its attitudes, its moods, the energy of the mind, you're able to really start to tune into this subtle awareness of our motivations. We're able to watch our impulses and our motivations behind our speech, our motivations behind how we act and, and what we do in the world. And then mindfulness is also practice for presence, for kind of being engaged and focused in the moment. It's for the purpose of awareness, which is to observe thoughts, emotions, and feelings, but also to observe in a particular way, which is non-reactive awareness. It's a hard kind of thing to talk about because it's not that your mind won't ever be reactive. It's just when there are reactions, we're not trying to react to the reactions. Right? So we're trying to practice just seeing the mind, like I said tonight, right now it's like this. With this kind of objective vantage point. It's almost like stepping back and observing. 
But the ultimate purpose of mindfulness is not just to focus, be present, not just to be aware, not just to try to be with the experience in a non-judgmental or non-reactive way, but it's to learn how to be more skillful and to direct our actions in a way that leads to our welfare and happiness. And this is what we call wise effort. To be able to prevent, as the Buddha says, the arising of unwholesome states of mind. To be able to abandon unwholesome mind states that are currently present. To be able to cultivate wholesome mind states like compassion, kindness, forgiveness. And to be able to maintain those states once they're in the mind. So this goes kind of deep into... Uh, you know, some nuance and detail. But the important thing here is why do we practice mindfulness? Because it serves our awakening. It serves our happiness. When we're aware, we can make choices that are based in our values. Right? It's like that moment of pause. Viktor Frankl talks about that. He says, between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space lies the power to choose our response. He says, in our, in our response lies our freedom. So I'll say it again, because this is kind of the nuance of all the aspects of mindfulness in one quote. He said, between stimulus and response, there's a space. So we have to pause and be present. In that space, that non-reactive awareness, lies the power to choose our response. In our choice, meaning how we choose to respond, is our freedom. This goes back to this idea that happiness doesn't depend on conditions. It depends on how we relate to conditions. How do we choose to respond? We have to have mindfulness. A moment to pause, to be aware, and to choose. And so eventually this is in service of more wisdom, right? Which is the kind of top of the path and the end of the path, wise view and wise intention. The word sama is in front of all of these in the Pali Sanskrit. The word sama, sometimes it's translated as right, sometimes it's translated as wise, but it actually means something more like complete. And so when we're talking about a wise view of the world, we're trying to have a more complete view. Right? The, the way that we see the world is oftentimes conditioned through our biological drives, what we want and what we don't want. Right? We often see the world through that lens. We see the world through our historical conditioning. Right? Our family beliefs or societal values, right? We see the world through economic views and political views and philosophical views. We also see the world through our current moods and emotions. So the Buddha is saying that having a view is not a problem, but we have to really be looking at the lens in which we're looking through. How are we seeing the world? Is it complete? I don't know about you, but my view of the world is often narrow. It's subjective. It's based on my current mood a lot of the times. It's you know, based on a lot of um, conditions. 
We have to have views to live in the world, but we have to understand that our views don't always represent the complete picture. And so one of the ways I like to talk about this in a simple way is wise view is about not clinging to fixed views. It's about being open-minded. It's about understanding that we're always seeing the world through some lens and that our lens is not actually the whole picture. Right? And the more that we practice having values, watching our behavior, practicing mindfulness, introspective awareness, our view becomes more clarified. We see more clearly our values in the moment. We see more clearly what those look like. Right? We feel more quickly when we don't act in line with our values and we feel that regret and we're able to you know, make amends or we're able to adjust. And so as we're aware, as we're practicing the path, our view becomes more and more clarified. Does that make sense? I'll, I'll read this quote and then i talk about intention for a moment and open it up. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. He's a Buddhist scholar. He says, The importance of right view or wise view can be gauged from the fact that our perspectives on the crucial issues of reality and value have a bearing that goes beyond mere theory and concepts. So this is the important part. I don't know what the hell he just said in that first sentence. (laughs) He says, this is the part that makes sense to me. Our views govern our attitudes... Right? So how we see the world governs our attitudes, our actions, and our whole way of relating to the world. Our views might not, might not be clearly formulated in our mind. We might have only a hazy conceptual grasp of our beliefs. But whether they're formulated or not, expressed or maintained in silence, these views have a far-reaching influence. They structure your perception, order your values, crystallize into the framework through which we interpret to ourselves the meaning of our being in the world. This is really powerful. Our view. And so having a view is not a problem, but how we see the world, we want to develop more clarity of that. And we want to be able to be more intentional. Right? Living in line with our values. So you see how this whole thing's like kind of a circle. <laughs> it's hard to even talk about it in a linear way. Because our view leads to how we are motivated to act, our intentions. Our intentions go into our speech, right? Into our physical behavior, into our work lives. Right? And these behaviors condition our mind. So one way I like to talk about this is that mind states like a greed, self-centeredness, self-seeking, for example, mind states like that condition behaviors. Right? Before I act, I have some mind state. States condition behaviors. Behaviors condition traits. You do things enough times, you're going to be inclined to do it again. And the behaviors condition traits, so that means that the mind state arises more often in your mind. Right? So how do we start to develop that moment, as Viktor Frankl says, to pause and to become aware of especially our intentions? 
This part, this part of the path, wise intention, is a very important part that the Buddha emphasizes. It's debatable, for those who have been coming a while, for who cares, it's debatable that this is the one thing more than anything else that the Buddha differed from the other spiritual teachers of his day, is his emphasis on how important our intentions are. So two ways to look at intention. One is our impulses to act. They call this uh, in Buddhist psychology chetana, which is moment-to-moment decision-making. Right? Our impulses are those moments where we, you know, want that kind of moment, that moment of movement to say something, want to do something, right? That's just kind of an impulse. And then our intentions also cover our motivations, which is, you know, what are we trying to get out of our actions? And the Buddha says this about intention. Whenever you perform a bodily act, you should reflect on it. This bodily act I want to perform, would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Is it an unskillful bodily act with painful consequences and painful results? If, on reflection, you know that it will lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both, it would be an unskillful body act with painful consequences, painful results, then any bodily act of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. (laughs) But if, on reflection, you know that would not cause affliction, it would be a skillful bodily action with happy consequences, happy results, then any bodily act of that sort is fit for you to do. So you see that this is really interesting because the Buddha is not saying this is right and this is wrong. He's saying if you pause and you reflect, is what I'm about to say unskillful? Will it have consequences? Will it harm myself or someone else? If we have that moment to pause and to check our motivations, right? that moment is an opportunity to practice something different. And whatever you practice, you get better at. And in a Buddhist perspective, happiness is a collection of good habits. If you want to feel good, you've got to do things you feel good about. Feeling good in a Buddhist sense is not about feeling pleasant. It's about being okay with things as they are. How do we learn to relate to things as they are? Living in line with our values, training our mind, developing wisdom. Seeing clearly and responding wisely. So you see this path is circular. Last thing I want to do is just read this quote by the Dalai Lama. He says, No matter what is going on, never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy in your country is spent developing the mind instead of the heart. Develop the heart. Be compassionate. Not just to your friends, but to everyone. Be compassionate. Work for peace in your heart and in the world. And I say again, never give up, no matter what is happening, no matter what is going on around you. Never give up. So as we walk this path together, I don't know if we reach the end of the path or we just circle back around over and over again. (laughs) But something seems to be you know, for me, leading to my welfare and happiness. And so I'm interested to hear from y'all, questions, comments, thoughts.